This episode of Rule Breaker Investing is brought to you by Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage process into the 21st century with a fast, easy, and completely online process. Check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. If you were with me last week, you know that ro- robots may one day rule the earth, but for at least, I hope, at least a good 50 plus years, we're still in charge. And that means your investing still matters, as does mine. And that's what I'm going to talk about this week. Uh, we've been bouncing around with lots of different topics in recent months, but today I'm going to go right back to investing, investing stories. I want to tell you about some of my earliest investments and stories and lessons that proceeded from them. So I'm excited to go back over six of my earliest first investments and draw some, I hope, important lessons, whether you're an experienced investor or a new investor, or if you want to share this with a new prospective investor, I hope this week's episode will be helpful for you. I also want to mention that next week is mailbag, so I hope you'll get your questions in. RBI at fool.com is the email address, or you can just go with at RBI Podcast on Twitter. And I will feature you if you ask a great question that I can speak well to next week. And speaking of next week, we're going to have a little bit of a split episode because I'm really excited to have an author joining with me next week. Her name is Candace Millard. And if you're a longtime Rule Breaker Investing listener, you know Candace as the author of the two wonderful books, River of Doubt about Teddy Roosevelt and Destiny of the Republic about the presidency of James Garfield. And Candace is out with her new book. It's about the young Winston Churchill. It's just out this month. And she's dropping by Washington, D.C., and she's graciously offered to come over to Full HQ. So I'll have Candace uh, in studio for next week's podcast, in addition to your good questions for mailbag. All right, with all that housekeeping now complete, let's get into this week's episode. So before I talk about six early investments, uh, each of which was so helpful as it guided me toward market beating thinking over the course of my first five, six, seven years as an investor from age 18 to age 25. A little bit of the portrait of the investor as a young man, just to throw out a little James Joyce reference for you, if you will. Um, I, I do want to mention why I started investing at the age of 18. And the reason I started investing at the age of 18 is because my father uh, had been coaching me throughout my youth. Uh, in fact, unbeknownst to me, at age zero, dad started investing for me, uh, just putting away money every single year investing in the stock market. And by the time I turned 18, I had a healthy, strong portfolio to inherit. And what Dad said to me that day uh, in 1984 was, here you go. This is all you're ever getting from me. Anything that I have left will go to your children, because that's the most tax-efficient way to move money down through the generations. So, in so many words, don't screw up. And of course, I did screw up. In fact, a couple of my stories are going to make it clear that Screwing up is part of investing. In fact, I've often likened investing to learning how to ice skate. So you better be prepared to fall a lot. You shouldn't go in with this thought that you can't once fall as you start to become an investor. And indeed, now some 30 plus years hence, I find that I fall just as much, probably, as I did when I first started. Uh, but I, I do, before I start my first story, I want to say how much I appreciated what my father did for me. And my father's still living today. He's 79 years old and he lives in Connecticut. And he sometimes tunes in, maybe not this podcast that often, but he bounces around our site some. And I just want to throw out a fun 
invitation to any of you that may, may feel so moved. And that is that while I won't ever read these notes, if you'd like to write a short note and email this week uh, to thank my dad, if you appreciate The Motley Fool, the reason The Motley Fool exists is because of Tom and David Gardner's dad, Paul Gardner. And if you'd like to write a short note explaining a little bit about who you are, how you found The Fool, and what The Fool means to you, um, we, would, we would love to hear from you and pass that on to him uh, this fall. So I'm just going to throw it out there. The email address will be dad at fool.com. That keeps things pretty simple. And um, again, feel free if you want to. This might just be a two-minute rule for some of you, but if you want to jot out a short note, I think Dad would enjoy hearing where you're from, who you are, and how you found the fool. All right. Now, with all that said, the first investment that I ever made was in the summer of 1984. Since my birthday is in May, I took over that portfolio as I graduated from high school, and it was time to buy my first stock. It was Leaseway Transportation Company. Now, I'm assuming you've never heard of Leaseway, although if you're from the Cleveland, Ohio area, you might know of Leaseway. And I'm I'm not really clear whether Leaseway is even still in business today. Uh, But Leaseway Transportation Company, the first thing that I think about when I think of LTC, which was the ticker symbol back then, is I smell the smell of Value Line. Now, many of you will not have used or know what Value Line is, but back in the day, and it's still a public company today with products that look much like the one I'm about to describe for you. Back in the day, this was the best way to find numbers, financial statements, dating back a decade or so for public companies. So it was the Value Line Investment Survey, and my father was subscribed to it. It was a large black tome. And each week, you would get kind of the weekly update. It would include updates on about 100 companies or so, usually organized by industry, I think it is. And so, as the new mailing came in, the Value Line mailing, Dad would rip it open. He would pull out the previous update on those companies from 13 weeks before, rip it out of the out of the big tome, and then put in the three-ring binder this new one in and keep that fresh investment data flowing for himself and, as it turns out, for his sons as well. And it was, it was just sort of a investing on paper, how it was done back in those days. And I can still smell the smell of the Value Line tome as I think about leaseway transportation, which for me was my first foray into the stock market. It was just a trucking company. It was a business I knew very little about. I think I'd seen occasional leaseway truck out there on the road. Maybe you will, because I think the brand might still be out there. But um, but it was very much a numerical exercise for me. That's the stage that I started at as an investor. It was what looked good on paper. Where were the ratios? Where were the multiples? Some combination of income statement, you know, the revenues and earnings of a company, and then the balance sheet. Uh, how much cash did that company have? How much debt did that company have? And at the time, and I think especially Dad had coached me to look at profit margins, the pennies on every dollar that represent profit on every dollar of sales, the net profit margin. I was focused on that. And at least within its industry, which is a trucking industry is a very low margin industry, it looked attractive. So I bought Leaseway at $26 a share. And sometime later that summer, I remember that it crested, it might have even been in the fall or later, but it it crested 42. And I think I sold. And that was my first investment. And the only lesson I want to pull away from that one is that I learned the stock market is fun. I mean, it's awfully fun to take real action with your money, put it in something whose price changes from minute to minute, and be patient with that. Find something, choose this one, not that one. Be choiceful about why you're buying a company and tie your financial destiny to this thing that is outside of your own sphere of control. And 
to some it might sound like gambling. To me, it never has because what you're doing is you're taking part ownership, as I did that brief time for Leaseway Transportation. Uh, but Leaseway uh, was my first investment, and because it was a winning investment, it was a wonderful introduction to investing. We don't all have that good fortune with our first pick. I'm about to mention a couple that didn't play out very well, but the stock market is fun. Sometimes I don't want things to get much more complicated than that, and especially if you're introducing young people in your life or if you are a young person, remember that. It goes up most of the time. Two years out of every three, the stock market rises. And if you find a good company whose work you believe in, you're likely to do better than that. Investment number two. Now, this was not my second investment. This did not come right after Leaseway Transportation. The truth is, I don't really remember what I bought next, and I had started with a portfolio already built for me. I'm not reviewing the very first six chronologically here. I'm reviewing six early ones that had a lesson attached to them. So, the second one I want to talk about is a company called Interlab Robotics. And if you actually recognize the name of Leaseway Transportation earlier, good for you. I just bet that no one has ever heard of Interlab Robotics. So, this was my first foray and really my only foray into penny stocks. I had just read an article in the Wall Street Journal that a company called Interlab Robotics, and because I've always been future oriented and robotics sounded exciting to me at the age of 18 or 19, that this company in the Wall Street Journal was reported to have a $40 million contract with China for its robotics. At the time, I didn't really know what the robots were. I didn't know how hard it was going to be to do business with China. What I did know is that it was trading at 15.30 seconds. Now, I'm betraying my age by giving you a fraction, because for those of you who are dyed-in-the-wool long-time investors, you'll remember that stocks used to trade in fractions. That's the way it was for a long, long time, until only about 20 or so years ago. So, Interlab Robotics was at less than 50 cents a share, 15.30 seconds. And the good news here for me, because the bad news is about to come in the story, but the good news is I put almost nothing at risk. I thought, this is going to be fun, this is silly. Um, the, the story is plausible, it sounds potentially exciting. Gee, if this stock just goes from 15.30 seconds to, I don't know, 32 30 seconds, $1 share, I will more than double my money. It sounded really exciting. It always does to anybody who's kicking through penny stocks. And uh, as it turns out, history will show that Interlab Robotics crested briefly to 19 30 seconds, at which point it fell to 0 30 seconds over the subsequent, I'm going to say, year or so, uh, with my money riding on it. So I think the reason. I want to tell the story is because it's natural. There's a natural allure to very low price stock, especially for new investors. And I guess to my credit, I was self consciously acknowledging that and just having fun with it and just putting very little of my portfolio at stake, well less than 1% of the portfolio in Interlab Robotics. And I was having fun speculating. And I guess in retrospect, it's good that it didn't play out really well for me because I might have started to believe that these kinds of investments are for real. But the truth is, throughout my life, I've been reminded more often than not that if something trades for pennies, the biggest question is not, hey, could I double my money if it makes it to a dollar a share? The biggest question to ask yourself is, how did it ever get to such a low share price in the first place? And usually, there are a number of key factors there which continue to play out and make penny stocks one of the worst offers every day 
on our modern stock market. I realize there are some penny stock aficionados listening, and I realize some people have had a big hit here or there. But in terms of really being a significant part of betting your financial future, I wouldn't bet at all. And it really is betting, I think, when you're playing that game. So, Interlab Robotics, you're gone today, but I thank you for the lessons. Okay, investment number three I wanted to talk about kind of blends the first two stories together because this one is fun, but it didn't play out well. There was a company called NBI Incorporated. It was based in Colorado. I believe, though I've not gone back and thoroughly researched this, anybody who'd like to can, that the company's business was a dedicated word processor. So, this is again mid 1980s. Word processing was hot. Those of us who grew up learning how to type on a, yep, a typewriter were most impressed by the prospect of these kind of computer looking dedicated word processor devices. NBI had one of them. Now, I was not a customer. Um, this was a company that was selling, I think, more to corporations, and I was just a college kid. But what I loved about NBI was this NBI stood for, no joke, nothing but initials. They had a CEO who was having fun out there, and uh, and certainly the foolish capital F spirit within me thought that's great. That is so great. Competing against companies like IBM, they're going with the big acronym themselves, and it turns out it stands for absolutely nothing. Now history will show, and I had to Google this one to figure it out, that the company, which was once a sixty million dollars a year plus company. In 1993, so this is now 23 years ago, reported its turnover plunging 71% down to just $1 million. I'm happy to say I wasn't still holding the stock in 1993, um, but I think I held for only about a year or so and watched my money get about halved. And it was a good lesson for me to maybe understand a little bit more about the business. While investing is fun, um, being a little bit too cavalier, often isn't going to cause your capital to do very well. And especially for me, I'm happy to say again, I didn't put much at stake. I was having fun testing and learning. And that's really the lesson I want to pull from this one, number three, is feel free to take a portion of your portfolio, a minority, and have some fun. Speculate. Try some things. Um, be silly sometimes. As long as it's just a tiny percentage of what you have, it, it can just be fun with very little downside. So, I guess, in retrospect, um, while I would have loved to see NBI perform better, uh, the stock, like Interlab Robotics, was a significant loser. None of these companies are really around today anymore, and uh, and you know I could have instead been buying Apple, but I wasn't that smart back then. And now to company number four. Now this is the first stock that I had that was a significant winner, and I did have a little bit more invested in this one and. As winners will do, it caused what I had invested in it to become a greater share of my portfolio by doing so well over the course of a few years. So the company was TCBY. Some of you will recognize that. Maybe you're driving down the highway and you see a rest stop, and there are a number of food brands, and you'll see TCBY in some areas of the country is out there. This is a company that was started in 1981, and TCBY stood for This Can't Be Yogurt. It was the early age of Froyo. And part of the promise of Froyo, it's still true today, is that it is somewhat healthier than ice cream itself. It is less fatty. And while it's still not particularly healthy on its own, frozen yogurt was a better replacement, in my mind back then, for ice cream, which I loved as well. It just wasn't quite as healthy. So, this can't be yogurt started in Little Rock, Arkansas. Frank Hickenbottom was the CEO of the company. And then over the first three years 
of the company, it franchised and went to 100 stores by 1984. So three years later, from one store to 100, and within a year or so after that, the company came public. And it was a raging winner for me. My biggest two memories of TCBY as a public company, number one, the stock would rise from 18 to 27, split three for two, back to 18, back to 27 again, split three for two again. I learned about stock splits from TCBY. And in the summer of 1986, it had a monster move. I'm going to say that the stock um, more than doubled over the course of just a couple of months. And I remember that because I had a college summer internship at Solomon Brothers. So I was on Wall Street and I had something like a Bloomberg box in front of me and I was able to watch TCBY stock moving and arcing up over the course of that summer. And I had friends who knew I owned the stock who would give me a call saying, are you seeing this stock? What is happening? And I didn't really know what was happening, but somewhere toward the end of that summer, there was a Heard on the Street article in the Wall Street Journal that talked about how TCBY was under what they were terming, I didn't know what it was at the time, a short squeeze. So let's briefly talk about short squeezes because this is the lesson for TCBY. What happens when people start to bet against a stock is that they short the stock. And that means they sell the stock first and then buy it later, hopefully for them at a lower price. So you're still buying low and selling high, but you're doing it in reverse order. You're selling high and then hoping later to buy that stock lower. Now, if you're new to shorting, I should mention that you might wonder how you can sell a stock you don't own. And what happens is you simply tell your broker, let's say it's Schwab, you say, hey, Schwab, I'd like to sell short that stock. And Schwab will borrow the shares from an existing account at Schwab and loan them to you. You sell them right away. You get cash in your account, but you're going to need to hold on to that cash because you're going to need to pay it to buy that stock back lower. And that's kind of how short selling works. It's something I've talked about in the past at Fool.com. We used to do it some with our free online portfolio. I haven't done it for years. I still respect it. I kind of like it. But it doesn't make a lot of sense for those of us who are patient investors, because the market goes up over time, and you're going to do a lot better by finding things that go up than playing short-term drops. Anyway, what I didn't know at the time was that there was a huge amount of short-selling going on that summer in TCBY, people doubting the company. For example, a lot of people pointed out that their brand name might not even work. This Campy Yogurt sounded a lot like another company that was out there first, ICBY, which stood for I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. And a lot of people said, that sounds like a trademark violation. TCBY, this can't be yogurt. They're copying ICBY, I can't believe it's yogurt, and they came second. And indeed, that was a problem. And TCBY eventually lost that lawsuit and had to rebrand itself. TCBY, I believe it then became the country's best yogurt. I think I still own shares at the time. But a lot of people were betting against this franchisee with its hyper growth and its recent IPO with a questionable brand name. And so, all of that betting against the company stood in the face of the company's operations reported throughout the year of 1986, which were stellar, and caused the stock to keep rising. And when a lot of people are betting against a stock, and it starts to rise, they panic sometimes and start to buy back those shares they'd already short-sold. And it only propels the stock even higher as all this extra buying comes in from people who feel bad about their short selling. So that's what was happening that summer of 1986. I learned about short squeezes. And, uh, and in the end, I learned that TCBY wasn't going to be a great stock. I did continue to hold. I did not manage to sell out at its highs. The company eventually declined and was taken private. I, I believe, actually, the company was bought out by 
by Mrs. Fields, the cookies company. And so you still see TCBY around today. But for me, um, that was truly my first multi-bagger. And so in addition to the lesson I learned about short squeezes and that sometimes short sellers are right, which is good to keep in mind, I learned the excitement that comes from multi-baggers. And a few years later, when I read Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, in which he glorified finding stocks that make a multiple of their original cost for you, uh, he in particular was lionizing the idea of 10-baggers. TCBY was nothing like a 10-bagger for me, but I, I had tasted the fruit and Lynch's inspiration to go and think about companies that can make big multiples of your initial investment became really exciting to my 20-something-year-old eyes and really have been kind of a focus of mine ever since. So, TCBY, a taste of the fruit. The fruit, though, in this case, kind of crunched up and put in um, low-fat yogurt that was frozen at the time and ended up kind of freezing me out somewhere in the late 80s as I sold at a profit, but not what I could have had. Okay, and before I get to my last two, it's time to pay the piper. If you're trying to find a new home, you definitely don't want to spend time searching through stacks of old files and paperwork before you can get a mortgage. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. It's fast, powerful, and completely online. Rocket Mortgage lets you easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. It's a quick online process that you can manage right from your couch. So, if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. Okay, early investment number five was Cognex. Now, the reason I'm highlighting this one is because Cognex is a going concern today. It has been a fine public company for a couple of decades, and I'm happy to say it's a winning Motley Fool stock advisor pick. I recommended it multiple times, and I think it served our membership really well. So I'm excited about the company going forward here from 2016, but right now we're dipping back into the early 1990s. And at the time, there was a stock market service, a stock picking newsletter, much like we run today at The Motley Fool. And it was a special situations letter. It was run by a guy named Walter Ramsley, who was very influential for aspects of my investment development back in my mid 20s. So Walter today, I believe, works at Walrus Funds, if I'm Googling him properly in Minneapolis, Minnesota. But back then, he ran his own special situation service. Walter had been an analyst, I believe, at Value Line, the aforementioned Value Line. Uh, and, and he was focused primarily on companies that were off Wall Street's radar. And this was highly attractive to me at the time. And Cognex was a good winning example. Now, part of the reason I eventually shifted from this strategy is because I didn't find that I won quite enough with this approach. But I'm highlighting Cognex because the machine vision company, which today is using its machine vision in very high-speed manufacturing lines to identify defects in microscopic semiconductors at high speeds. Uh, that company, uh, if you take the tech and roll it back about 25 years ago, that's what Cognex was doing back then. But I'm not really speaking so much about Cognex right now, but rather the style of investing that Ramsley and then I, by association, practiced. And that was specifically looking for companies that the way I would describe it today would be the third or fourth player in a niche industry. So it's a company you wouldn't have heard of, like Cognex in 1990. And it's a company that would be in a kind of a 
closed industry, not something that was open to a huge amount of innovation or change. It wasn't a Facebook or an Amazon-like approach back then. It was finding small caps, and the, the dream was that we would be buying them in advance of Wall Street finding out about them. And inevitably, if the company performed well, Wall Street would begin to cover it. And at the time, the stock would begin to rise because new money, money managers, Wall Street attention would be coming in, and you would get an extra plus up from the attention from the institution. So that was systematically the process that we were practicing back with that approach. And indeed, when it came time to write the Motley Fool Investment Guide, once we'd started The Motley Fool in 1993 as a newsletter for our parents' friends, just a couple of years after I had started with Walter's service, right through to 1994, when we debuted in August 4th of 1994 on America Online, we started to write our first book in 1995, and still this style and these thoughts were going through my head, and it's how I invested. So, if you ever saw an early copy of the Motley Fool print newsletter, and if you did, it means you're a friend or family member of mine, because that's the only people who saw the first year of the Motley Fool newsletter, you would have seen a number of pics of these kinds of companies. And I'm disappointed to tell you, 20 years or so later, that very few of them are even still in business. Now, that doesn't mean they're bad investments, but it does mean that if you're playing the long-term game, you probably don't want to be finding niche players that aren't even the leader. They're the third or fourth dog back on the I-did-a-ride dog sled in their industry, and these are companies that generally are not going to stand the test of time, and often Wall Street wouldn't pay that much attention to them. And In the end, I kind of abandoned the approach as I began to shift to what is my final investment story I'm going to share with you this week. Um, but I, I still appreciate Ramsley's work. It was very influential for me. I learned a lot more about fundamental analysis of companies by studying the technologies and businesses of each of the companies that he, he would feature month in and month out through his investing newsletter. And in a lot of ways today, Motley Fool Stock Advisor, one of the services that I run at the Motley Fool, still does this same kind of thing. Not looking for those kinds of companies, but picking a stock month in and month out according to his style and just letting the results show themselves over the course of time hopefully beating the market. So, I appreciate Walter and his work, but we shifted away from that. Although, I will mention that today, The Motley Fool's Hidden Gem service is a service that continues to look for those kinds of companies, although in a much more intelligent way than I was as a 20-something back then. All right. That takes me through to my final investment story I want to share for you this week, and that was my first purchase of America Online. So, America Online was my first great stock, and that's why I wanted to close with it. Um, America Online at the time came public, I believe, in 1992. I watched it for a couple of years. I did not buy the shares. I watched the stock. I was an AOL user. I was an early adopter. I'd been using my computer to dial up the phone to connect me to AOL's private online services since about 1990. I was very much a believer in the medium. That's kind of why The Motley Fool exists, in addition to our dad getting us started as investors. Uh, and, and it was extremely frustrating, therefore, for me to watch the stock double from about 1992 to 1994 without my money riding on it. Again, I felt like I knew the company better than most. I believed in it. I was using it every day, and I watched the stock double. And yet, I decided in the summer of 1994 that it's time to buy this stock. Very influential for me was as a Moorhead Kane Scholar at the University of North Carolina, I was conscious that my full tuition had been paid for a man named John Motley Moorhead, who was a union carbide executive back in the middle of the last century and left his money after he died to fund the Moorhead Scholarship at the University of North Carolina. And I had been a Moorhead Scholar, and those of us who graduated were given a little book from Moorhead himself with advice. 
And in that book, a short book, I'm going to say it was 15 or 20 pages, it was more like a pamphlet, he mentioned how if you go to work for a company, you should buy some shares of that company, just to be loyal, to be invested, uh, to be a team player. And we were getting ready to start on America Online, The Motley Fool. And I thought, you know, I'm going to buy some shares of that company. And in fact, when we started The Motley Fool on America Online, we made it one of our early portfolio choices. Um, so it was actually, in some ways, John Motley Moorhead's emboldening me to just buy the darn stock, even though it had already doubled, that made me willing to go ahead and purchase AOL. It was a significant holding of mine from the beginning. And what was amazing about this stock was how it disproved everything that I thought about investing up until that time. Because if you were hearing what I just said a few minutes ago, I had been so focused previously, my previous 10 years as an investor, on looking for companies that were off Wall Street's radar, that weren't that well known, that I was hoping Wall Street would one day discover. And America Online was very much in the public eye, both as a stock, a winning stock at the time, and as a business, a consumer experience a lot of us were having. And a lot of people thought that America Online stock was overvalued. And indeed, much of my own analysis at the time, the way I was valuing stocks and thinking about things, yes, AOL looked overvalued to me too. And a year or two later, after the stock had doubled or tripled, um, there it was, being called out at an annual meeting somewhere in Europe, I remember, of the Global Economists as the number one most overvalued stock on the stock on the American stock market. And I believe a summer later after that, somewhere in the late 1990s, that August group once again fingered America Online as a repeat offender. Again, a second year in a row, the most overvalued stock. By this time, America Online was up about 10 times in value, not just for me, but for many Motley Fool members at the time. And I'm very happy to say that over the course of the next five years or so, America Online went from being a 10-bagger to being, at its height, a 150-bagger. Now, it was obviously the dot-com days when those kinds of crazy things could happen. But for a lot of us, it was very real when Time Warner and AOL merged uh, right around the year 2000. Uh, it, it was as if AOL had truly come of age and was one of the biggest media companies in the world. And those of us who had bought that overvalued stock, who in my case had watched it already double before I'd ever decided to buy it, learned so much, I think, about what works in investing. Now, we all know how the story played out years later. America Online today has been purchased by Verizon. It's a company that really lost from the year 2002 on. It began to lose its market share as the world went um, from dial-up to broadband. And America Online began to shrink in size, and the merger didn't work out too well with Time Warner, and there were layoffs. And AOL these days is still a vital company, but nothing like the big dog that it was back then. And yet, the lessons that I learned, that I hope you can learn from watching something be, quote, overvalued, end quote. I've spoken to that many times past here on Rule Breaker Investing, how that's a good indicator. America Online was my first great stock. I'm happy to say it isn't my only 100-plus bagger. Amazon.com is, and I've got four 50-baggers right now for Motley Fool Stock Advisor members that we've invested in since that service started in 2002. But I had to close with AOL because I'm, I still owe such a debt of gratitude to Steve Case, who founded the company, and to those economists in Europe, and really, in the end, most of all, to the Motley Fool community, which started on AOL is today on our website, and the discussion boards and the sharing and the learning that we all had together watching that company or other great companies like Amazon and Netflix and Apple, and the list goes on, um, were 
uh, I think, the lesson for a lifetime. So I hope you enjoyed this tour through the past with some lessons to learn, in this case, just from the early investments that I've made. If you're just getting started investing, or if you're looking back on your career and thinking of those early investments yourself, feel free to share for our mailbag next week. In the meantime, from leaseway transportation to interlab robotics to nothing but initials, TCBY, Cognex, and America Online, I wish you all the very best investing yourself. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.